is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Bro. Whoa, 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 whoa. Bro Camp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hey, bro. Hello, Allison. Hello, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, in this week's show, we're going to talk about the very fine line between multi-level marketing and a pyramid scheme. Curious why your international stock funds haven't done so well this year? It might be because they hold stocks in Chinese companies, which are down 14% so far in 2021. Motley Fool analyst Ben Ra explains why. Finally, we answer a question about which stocks should go in which accounts. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. All right, before we get to the show, you thought we were going to go right into the show. No, but before we do, it's that time of year again where I ask listeners like you for a favor. That's because the Motley Fool's great big annual all-company event is coming up, and I'm looking for a few volunteers to help me with a project so that Fool employees can get to know our members better. So pretty, pretty please, if you're willing to work with us to share your story as a Fool member, drop me a line at answers at fool.com. All you have to do is say, how can I help? And I'll be in touch with the next steps. Pretty please, just send me an email. All right, back to the show. It's 2016 and you stumble upon a live stream. Maybe you're on Facebook or YouTube and it's a heavyset middle-aged man bearded, a bit like Santa on summer vacation. He's sitting in front of a wall of stacked, brightly colored fabric, and he's selling a pair of women's leggings, holding them up to the camera and describing them as buttery soft. In an easygoing drawl, this one's got a cute little kitty cat pattern on it. Now who wants to buy it? What is going on? Again, it's 2016, and you were witnessing, or maybe me, one of the fastest growing companies at the time, growing 24% a month on its way to $2.3 billion in revenue the following year. The company is LuLaRoe, and it's the subject of a new documentary series on Amazon Prime. I won't give away too much, but LuLaRoe is a multi-level marketing company, although a few lawsuits and legal actions, the Washington Post pegs it at around 50, claim that they are much more like a pyramid scheme. So now seems like a good a time as any to talk about multi-level marketing and how to tell if you're actually in a pyramid scheme or a cult, as one woman in the documentary describes it. Multi-level marketing companies are a 35 billion dollar industry. And AARP estimates that one in 13 Americans have participated in one at some point. Sometimes called network marketing, it's a form of direct selling. Avon, Mary Kay, Tupperware, and Amway might come to mind, but there are hundreds of them operating in the U.S. alone, selling everything from candles and cosmetics to jewelry, vitamins, supplements, and kitchen tools. So what makes an MLM company an MLM company? As Robert Fitzgerald said in the Lula Rich series, multi-level marketing turns a company's sales force into its customers. That's because the people who are selling the products, often directly to friends, family, and on Facebook to people they haven't seen since high school, they have to first purchase inventory from the company. While the fee for getting started could be as low as 100 bucks, you may need to make a minimum investment that's much, much more expensive than that to buy all these products. Which brings us to our first red flag. For this, I'm looking to Brian Fry from the Motley Fool's Ascent team, which helps people make more informed personal finance decisions, such as choosing the right credit card or broker. Here's Brian. You might be in a pyramid scheme if you hear the words, be your own boss. That should raise an eyebrow. When I was in college, I was pitched a gig to paint houses, and I was told I could be my own boss, set my own hours. And that came with a lot of responsibilities like buying paint and tools 
most of which would cost thousands of dollars, but you had to buy these from, you guessed it, the company rep who recruited you. If it's thousands of dollars to buy in upfront, especially from the company who recruits you, whether it be painting tools or paying a mandatory training or membership fee, you might be in a pyramid scheme. Another unique aspect of multi-level marketing is that as a salesperson, you recruit more salespeople to be under you or downline, and then you get a commission or cut of their sales. And if they recruit people under them, you get a commission or a cut of their sales too. The more people you have under you, the more money you make, which brings us to our next red flag. Once you've joined, you might be in a pyramid scheme if there's an emphasis on recruiting over selling product. See, one of the big money makers for pyramid schemes is recruiting people to buy in to get started. And they often get commissions or pay bonuses based on this fact. Like in the horror movie, It Follows, the only way to survive is to pass the curse on to the next person. And this isn't a great business model. According to the Direct Sales Association, 75% of multi-level marketing representatives or salespeople are women and often stay-at-home moms who are enticed to join because of the promise of being able to make a ton of money on your own time after you've put the kids to bed. As Casey Bond, writing for the Huffington Post, puts it, these MLMs encourage women to market heavily to their existing social networks under the guise of female empowerment. You're encouraged to create a sense of FOMO by showing off that empowerment and wealth and on social media in order to draw in new recruits using hashtags like boss babe or CEO and entrepreneur. You thought that Huns were a nomadic people of Central Asia, but Huns are now a derogatory term for aggressive women trying to recruit you into their downline with chipper DMs like, hey, Hun, I have an amazing opportunity to share with you. Which brings us to another red flag. If you're pressured to attend an event before being hired, that can be a canary in the coal mine for pyramid schemes. They put on these events for one simple reason. They work. They hype up the crowd with stories of wealth and success and often bring in big name speakers to draw attention. And they want to give you a taste of this fancy lifestyle. But they're often a little shaky on the details. You might walk away feeling good, but you have no idea what it is you're actually supposed to do. A lot of people claiming to make millions actually do so by selling materials on how to make millions, not through the actual products themselves. Some people will argue that all multi-level marketing companies are scams. If you were to ask the FTC, they'd probably tell you that they don't love an MLM, but they do draw a line between legally operating multi-level marketing companies and pyramid schemes. Legal or no, making money selling for an MLM is not easy. The key is to being at the top of the pyramid, which is rarefied air. The Consumer Awareness Institute, whose research has been touted by the FTC, they found that 99% of people who participate in an MLM lose money. AARP is more generous, and they estimate that 75% of people lose money. And of the one quarter of participants who make a profit, half make less than $5,000. Way, way less than the hundreds of thousands a month you might be told you could make. When financial times are tough, MLM and pyramid schemes find fertile ground to grow. The pandemic was no different. Five million women lost their jobs and two million never returned to the workforce. As Bridget Reed, writing for The Cut, puts it, multi-level marketing companies looked at these unemployed women and saw potential recruits and jumped at the opportunity. This includes pressuring people to use their stimulus checks to get started. It got so bad that in 2020, TikTok actually became the first social media platform to ban all MLM content. 
The Direct Selling Association estimates that there are about 1,100 MLM companies in operation, but they admit it's hard to keep track. As they put it on their website, many companies may even come and go before they could be counted. So one last red flag from me. As I said, a multi-level marketing company turns the salesperson into a customer. A pyramid scheme turns its victims into perpetrators. This is because as a sales rep, to be successful in a pyramid scheme, you are under constant pressure to make money by recruiting more people under you. In turn, you pressure those people to recruit people who pressure more people who pressure more people under them. And if berating people to claw your way up the pyramid sounds like a great way to make money, it also sounds like an excellent way to alienate everyone around you. But also, you might get a gig on a documentary one day. So that's kind of cool. With the S&P 500 up 20% so far in 2021, it's been a good year for investors, right? Well, it depends on what you own. One group of investments that has not had such a good 2021 is stock in Chinese companies. The iShares MSCI China ETF is down more than 14% so far this year. And some of the biggest stocks, such as Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, are down even more. Here to explain what's going on in the world's most populous country with the second biggest economy is Ben Ra, an investment analyst with The Motley Fool and my former cubicle neighbor when we worked in the office in the pre-pandemic days. Ben, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. And do you miss my dancing and air drumming while you tried to work? I was going to talk about that, but since you mentioned it, uh, we can we can go into that. <laughs> I miss it, and I do. <laughs> well, I miss you, and I miss being in the office, but we still have many months until they're going to let us back in. But anyways, let's get right to it. What the heck's going on with Chinese stocks? Um, you know, there's... <laughs> There's a confluence of many different things. So, you know, there's this famous quote by Machiavelli that, you know, a, a ruler should do all of the bad things, right? All of the cruel things, all of the, the punishments they should do um, at one time, whereas benefits should be handed out piece by piece so that people can enjoy it more, right? So, all of the things that uh, the Chinese government really wants to crack down on when it comes to businesses. So, education companies, gaming companies, uh, data, uh, big tech, all of these things are happening at the same time. They're not necessarily um, all related, but this is sort of an opportunity where the Chinese government says, well, this is the time to crack down. Let's bring all of the things that we wanted to crack down on and do it all at the same time, instead of just like dragging it out over the years. So it's going to be a time of pain for a lot of different uh, companies that, from the viewpoint of the Chinese government, they're you know they see problems. But at the same time, I, I think it's wrong to see it purely from a Western viewpoint, where it's a government cracking down on business. I think we do have to understand also that a lot of these business leaders, especially the most powerful ones, they're all part of the Communist Party, right? Jack Ma, the Pony Ma, uh, Richard Liu, they're all part of the Communist Party. So I, I think the better way to characterize it is the political wing of China's leaders um, asserting control over the business wing of uh, China's leaders, which over the last 20, 30 years, the business leaders have been ascendant, right? They've gotten hold of Western capital. They're able to build these businesses that, according to Beijing, according to the political leaders today, especially under Xi Jinping, they see these businesses as sort of predatory rent-seeking businesses um, that are sort of 
doing these things, making a lot of money for the benefit of outside investors. And let's face it, a lot of these companies do have a very considerable Western um, foreign investor base. And we do have to realize, although from the outside, um, it's hard to see, but a lot of activity, business activity in China, there are some things that, you know, um, especially as fools, um, it's not always uh, kosher. Right. So there's a lot of anti-monopolistic activity where a company like a, a Tencent or a Meituan or an Alibaba would use their uh, monopolistic position to, say, force merchants to only use their, um, their platform and cancel their um, presence on the other platforms. Those kinds of things. We, um, in the U.S. and in the West, we've kind of sort of moved away from through regulations, through convention, over a long period of sort of capitalistic development. We've kind of developed um, lines that you don't cross. In China, things have happened so fast in the last 20, 30 years that those lines um, didn't really have a chance to develop. And these companies became so powerful so fast. So this is sort of a way for the government to catch up, if you will. Now, anyone who invests in any country, you have to uh, factor in differences between their markets, their regulations, and what happens in the U.S. So with China in particular, you know, there's this question of how much the government will intervene, uh, but there's also questionable questionable financials. And we saw that last year with like Luck and Coffee, a stock that went from $50 to a dollar after some shenanigans were uncovered. In your opinion, uh, um, is one of those risks bigger than the other or are they about equal? I don't know if I can answer that one as as directly as uh, maybe you would wish. But you know, the questionable financials, I think over time, that's bound to improve. And it actually, even up till now, it's improved. If you go back to like 2014, I remember seeing tons of Chinese companies that showed amazing uh, value, amazing numbers. Like it just couldn't have been so perfect. And a lot of them turned out to be just falsified. So there is still a lot of falsification uh, going on. But at the same time, we do have to remember that the, the direction most likely is going to be toward improvement. Right, because you know they started out from a low base of, of transparency, of honesty, and now they're sort of working their way up. If you look at the history of, say, like Korea, it's kind of the same thing. Um, I remember back in the '90s, like in the Korean business, there were so many shenanigans going on, uh, so much like things that just would not have been that would not be allowed today. But there's improvement over time, and uh, in a way, the Chinese government is on your side when it comes to that. Um, as investors, um, because they're trying to sort of follow this this extreme pace of change that's gone on over the last 20, 30 years. And the change has been really, I mean, this is one of the things that they always talk about in, in the government circles is the change is just so fast and the regulations have to sort of catch up with that. And, and they're attempting to do that now. Um, so I, I see that problem as something that gradually over time, you're going you're gonna to see improvements on when it comes to transparency. When it comes to the Chinese government cracking down, um, it, we, we do have to understand that um, the relationship between government and business in, in the U.S. and China are completely different. Government, we have this idea in the West of government and civil society as being sort of two separate things. 
And a lot of our political discourse actually revolves around like how much should government actually interfere into civil society? How much is right? You know, how much should they, you know, mandate mass, for instance, right? That's a good example that's going on right now. In China, it's a completely different uh, paradigm where there isn't that separation. And the government is actually almost seen as the head of a national family. It's almost like the, the father of a family. Think of yourself as a parent. You're going to interfere into the moral lives of your kids because you want your kids to develop a certain way. The same thing for the government in China. And that's not entirely unnatural in Confucian societies. China is a little bit more extreme, I would say. But it's something that would be understood in, say, a South Korea or a Japan, although maybe not to the same degree. One thing that uh, U.S. investors may not be fully aware of is that it's actually against Chinese law for foreigners to own many types of companies, yet somehow Americans can own stock in Chinese companies. How is that possible? You're referring to the famous VIE structure. So when you buy a Chinese stock, you're not actually buying a share of that actual company. You're buying a share of something, uh, sort of like a shell company that's located mostly in the Cayman Islands. Right. So the design is that you as the shareholder of that company get the economic benefits, but at the same time, you don't have really any kind of shareholder rights as you would consider them here in the U.S. in terms of voting rights and such. That that company is going to be wholly controlled by mostly by the founders and other insiders uh, in China. Now, that if you look at it by the letter of the law, it's illegal, but the Chinese government has sort of turned a blind eye because this was seen as a way for these companies to raise capital. Now what you see today is the Chinese government is is sort of cracking down on foreign IPOs. And the funny thing is you find the Chinese government and you find a considerable amount or a considerable majority, I would say, of Congress on the same page because both of them want to restrict Chinese companies from IPOing here in the U.S. for different reasons. From the point of view of the U.S., we're saying, you know, we don't want American capital going into Chinese companies. From the point of view of the Chinese, it's much more complex. But what they do want, I think, is for a lot of these companies that used to IPO here in the US, they want those companies to IPO either in Hong Kong or in Shanghai or in Shenzhen. And um, you know, from the American viewpoint, it's something that we have to think about, which uh, you know really serves our, our national interests. And from the point of view of uh, American investors um, at Global Partners, we've always recommended that to prefer Chinese companies that list in China. And if you're going to buy a share of a Chinese company, then go for the one that's listed in Hong Kong rather than the one that's listed here in the US. Yes, and by Global Partners, you mean the Motley Fool service that you work on. Uh, and you also mentioned VIE earlier, and VIE stands for Variable Interest Entities. So it's something interesting to look into if you are interested in investing in Chinese stocks, because it is something a little different. Um, so are there any challenges confronting China as a country that investors should be aware of? Um, a few that come to mind is that you hear more talk about uh, a real estate bubble and um, Evergrande, one of the biggest real estate uh, developers in China having a, some problems servicing its debt. China has some significant demographic challenges thanks to its one-child policy, although it's it's let up on that policy in the last few years. And then there's President Xi Jinping. Turned, he turned 68 in June, which is the customary retirement age for the Communist Party's top leaders. Uh, but there are indications that he's not interested in stepping down. So um, are any of these issues cause for concern, or is there something else that U.S. investors should know about? 
you know, I, I think if you look at if you look back in history, um, just like over the last 20, 30 years, at every point since the early 90s, well, let's say from like since 1978, right around when China started to reform and open up, at every point, there were risks that were pointed out by both the Chinese and the Western and, and Western people about the situation in China. In the 90s, it was like bank debt. You know, there, there's always these risks that people point out and the risks always change. And right now, the risk is, I mean, it's, there are serious risks, right? There's uh, indebtedness, serious indebtedness in the real estate sector with population demographics, there's challenges. Um, but at the same time, when you look at those problems 20, 30 years ago, um, things change. Um, either through luck or through the actions of um, the leadership, they managed somehow to overcome uh, these challenges. So I would not underestimate the ability of that structure, uh, the leadership structure, to overcome these challenges. Um, we should be aware that they are very aware. They're even more aware of those challenges than we are. As much as we may worry about what's going on, they know the situation much better. Um, and, you know, the Communist Party, when you look at it, people always think of it as like a political party. It's 90 million, 95 million members, right? It's larger than the population of any European country. And I always describe the Chinese Communist Party as um, sort of a network of China's leaders. Um, you'll find in their business leaders, entertainment leaders, people from all walks of society are accepted into this this sort of club. And um, it's really the path uh, to leadership in China in whatever field. So whatever we may say about the Chinese Communist Party, one thing that they've done really well is they've been able to attract a lot of smart people. I mean, if you're if you're top top of your class at Beida, right, Beijing University, most likely you're going to be in the Communist Party. You know, you have to be at that level to be accepted into the party. Um, so, you know, the, the future leaders of China are in that party and they've managed to get together the smartest people. Like if you think of the United States, like the people in Silicon Valley, uh, people on Wall Street, they're going to be part of that party if we had something similar. So um, I would not underestimate their ability to manage these challenges. Um, and 10 years later, 20 years later, there's going to be a new set of challenges. And China is a huge country and huge countries have uh, huge challenges. But at the same time, you know, I would not underestimate, as I said, their ability to overcome that. So let's get to the bottom line here. Um, should investors avoid China or is this recent slump a buying opportunity? I mean, I, I've i kept all my Chinese stocks and I've, I'm not giving personal financial advice, which I can't do, which we can't do. Um, but it hasn't really scared me to tell you the truth. Maybe they haven't done enough. Maybe they're going to do a bit more. I think it's very likely that they're going to crack down even more. But I think one thing that investors should consider: we've we've considered a lot of the downside prob the downside risk of what might happen when the government cracks down, and we've seen some of it, especially with the education sector. A lot of those stocks have really. I mean, I'm talking like ninety percent tanked. But when you look at a Tencent or an Alibaba, what's the government trying to do? They're trying to get the, the massive amounts of data that an Alipay or a WeChat Pay, these huge platforms have managed to 
to to to collect in China, and they're trying to use it. They're trying to get a hold of it, and they're trying to create what they call there's a social credit system, and that's a whole other. I don't want to get into it too much. I don't think we have time for that, but they're trying to create sort of an integration of business and government at a level that we really haven't seen. I don't think in in the West. Um, and one thing I think we should consider is that, you know, in this scenario, if they succeed, Alibaba and Tencent become even more important to Chinese society than they were before. Um, and whatever, uh, when we while we do consider the downside risk, maybe we haven't considered enough the upside risk, and also the possibility that because they become so important. Um, it actually eliminates some of the downside risk because they become, in a way, national institutions. Um, because whatever the government does, they can't recreate an Alipay. They can't recreate an Alibaba or a WeChat. They can only destroy. They can really only hurt. And they're using their power of hurting to get control over these resources. Um, but actually, you know, the, the source of those resources will always be a Tencent and an Alibaba. So I could close real quickly with an article you wrote last summer, and it was entitled "China and the Truth." Uh, and it, I thought it was a fascinating article. Explain how we in the U.S. and and people in China see truth differently. Maybe this is a controversial scene, but I'm you know I've lived in in Korea for a while in my in my youth, so I kind of see things from both sides as a, both a Westerner and. And an Easterner, but you know, if you if you look at a lot of, especially the U.S., you can really see the influence of a single, we call them Abrahamic religions, right? So a Christianity, really forming um, the 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 laws and the moral, the fiber of of the society. So there's this idea of this single dominant truth in in the West. Right, and at different times, it's different things. Back in the day, it was Christianity, and that was considered uncontested. Right now, it's probably science. Um, but you know, you have people searching for that single dominant truth, and there's there's that idea of this overarching truth that exists somewhere, and people are always searching for it. In in the East, that kind of thinking has never really uh, taken hold. Um, so you know, truth and falsehood are not inseparable entities. They are, in fact, related, just like good and evil. Um, from the Eastern viewpoint, God and Satan are, in a way, um, best friends. Uh, they're not opposites. They're not enemies. They're, they're you know, both sides of the same coin. Um, you know, there's a range, right, between, between good and evil. So, it, you know, there's never been an attempt in Eastern philosophy to incorporate all of the things that we call good loyalty, you know, generosity, all these different qualities under this one one thing called good, which is represented by a god. There hasn't been that history um, in the East. It's a totally different way of seeing the world. If you stare at the yin-yang symbol for a long time, I think that's the best way to actually get into the mind of, of how uh, the Eastern world sort of thinks about these fundamental questions. Uh, because if you look at that symbol, you see that black and white, black is actually strongest where white is strongest and white is strongest where black is strongest. And, you know, the, the, the actual message of that uh, symbol is that black and white are the same, which is a logical contradiction. It's almost like you, you have to rewire your brain to actually see things from uh, their point of view. And that requires, because our brains have been sort of wired over 
you know, a couple thousand years of, of you know, education and, and, and history, uh, that's very difficult to do. The example you used in the, in the article was really the start of the coronavirus, which, you know, we here in the West think that China, you know, wasn't truthful, wasn't honest, wasn't forthcoming about what happened. Whereas in the article, you explain how people in China feel like, no, actually, uh, we told you pretty much everything you needed to know. And it's not really our obligation to tell foreigners the truth. You see, communication is different in, I mean, especially in a place like Japan. I, I think it's actually more difficult in Japan than it is in China. Um, a lot of communication happens through implication, through even an expression, you know, through things that are not said as much as things that are said. And you're kind of obligated in a way to get the message. Here, you're sort of, you have to kind of spell things out clearly to people. There, communication happens through implication. Uh, through the tone, tone of your voice, through things that are not said versus what is said. I think if you're American and you go to Japan, you'll have a lot of difficulty uh, mixing into the society because of that. Um, but that's, I think, that's not something that is just uh, Chinese. I think actually um, Japan-U.S. communication has been uh, just as difficult as uh, China-U.S. communication. Well, it's a very insightful article. I highly recommend it. Um, it's published on full.com, so it's free, titled China and the Truth, written by our guest today, Ben Ra. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Well, hey, it's time for Answers Answers, and this week's story comes from Adam. I have a 401k, and I make my contributions to a Roth account, and the company match goes into the pre-tax account. I recently found out that I can roll over a portion of my money. Since my 401k doesn't allow for me to pick individual stocks, I rolled over the pre-tax portion to a traditional IRA and the Roth portion to a Roth IRA. Now I have cash for individual stocks in those two IRAs as well as in a taxable brokerage account. How do I decide what type of stocks to buy in each account? I have some stocks that pay dividends and some stocks that don't and probably won't anytime soon. Woo, bro, make sense of that for me. That was a lot of accounts getting thrown around. Yes. Well, I'm going to open up, actually, by using Adam's question as an opportunity to highlight a few features about the 401k and, and really retirement plans in general that maybe some people may not know about. So first off, most 401ks these days offer the Roth option. It, it's around 75% of plans. And if your plan doesn't offer it, just ask. Maybe they'll, they'll change their minds. Um, 403Bs can also offer the Roth, and it's available in the biggest employer-sponsored retirement plan in the country, which is the Thrift Savings Plan for federal employees, which is almost like $800 billion in assets and, and more than 6 million participants. Um, the only types of plans that can't be Roths are the simple IRA and the SEP IRA, which are generally offered by the self-employed and business owners. So um, avoid those plans if you like the idea of the Roth. Now, the great thing about employer-sponsored Roth accounts, unlike the Roth IRA, is that there are no income limits. Anyone can contribute. Why would you want to? Well, with the Roth, you don't get a tax break on contributions, but the money grows tax-free, as long as you follow all the rules. With traditional pre-tax contributions, it's the other way around. You essentially get a deduction on your contributions, but you do pay taxes when you take the money out. These days, with tax rates at historically low levels, plenty of discussions about higher tax rates in the future, many people would prefer to give up a tax break this year in exchange for tax-free income in retirement. But as Adam points out, even if you contribute to a Roth, the employer match, if you get one, 
goes into a traditional pre-tax account. So you'll have both types. Now, once the money's in the account, you generally have to wait until you leave the company to take it out. You know, either be, you know you switch jobs or you're retired. At that point, you can roll it over to an IRA, which, if done properly, is a tax-free and penalty-free event. And I'll just emphasize the do it properly part because there are some ways that you can mess up and end up paying taxes and penalties. Um, however, Adam is highlighting another lesser-known feature. Around 70% of plans allow for something called an in-service distribution, which allows you to roll over the money even while you're still working for the company. Why would you want to do that? Well, generally, it's because your 401k has high fees and or limited investment choices. Unfortunately, in most cases, in-service distributions are only allowed for those who are 59 and a half or older, um, but ask your plan provider about the rules for your 401k. Okay, so now let's get to Adam's question about which investments should go into which accounts. The answer depends on many factors unique to you, but here are a few guiding principles. First, you want your Roth to grow the most because it's the tax-free account, right? So to the extent that you feel you can rank your investments according to the highest potential return, use the Roth for the investments with what you believe to be the greatest growth opportunities. You might use your taxable brokerage account for a stock that doesn't pay a dividend and that you plan to hold on to for a long, long time. We're talking several years, maybe decades. So you don't have to worry about paying taxes until you sell, at which point you'd pay the lower long-term capital gains rates. So for the traditional pre-tax account, that leaves investments for which you have maybe more modest expectations and or that you don't plan to hold on to for a long time. Uh, as for dividends, if you're many years from retirement, then consider putting dividend-paying stocks in your tax advantage accounts. Otherwise, you'll taxes on the dividends you receive each year, even if you reinvest them, and that would gradually sort of erode how much you can invest. However, once you retire and rely on your portfolio for income, it might make sense to keep dividend payers in a taxable brokerage account because qualified dividends are taxed at a lower rate than withdrawals from your traditional retirement accounts. Now, Adam doesn't give his age, but since most plans only allow in-service distributions for those who are at least 59 and a half, it's a good bet he's that age or older. If that's true, then he could be within a decade of retirement. And that's definitely a good time to gradually build up what we call an income cushion, which is three to five years worth of portfolio provided retirement income that is kept out of the stock market. And you put it in like cash or short-term bonds, CDs, something like that. So he might want to hold on to some of the cash he has. Again, this is presuming that he's you know a few years from retirement or so. And since most studies indicate that the first account that you should tap in retirement is your taxable brokerage account, that might be the place where he holds on to some of the cash that he has. There is much more to this topic, including guidance on where to put things like mutual funds, bonds, options, and real estate investment trusts, the dividends from which are generally not qualified and thus taxed at a higher rate than other dividends. So do an online search for the term asset location, not allocation, but location, and you'll get more tips and tricks. That's the show. It's edited buttery softly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Remember, I'm looking for a few volunteers who'd be willing to help me out. Um, and again, I'll really, really appreciate it. Email me at answers at fool.com and just say I'm here to help and you'll be my best friend. All right. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.